Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. With millions still unemployed in the United States and COVID cases spiking across the country, it's going to take some time before the economy returns to whatever normal is going to look like. The American government's extension of unemployment payments ends at the end of July, and the Republicans are complaining that workers would rather sit at home with their government checks than try to go to work. In other words, risk their lives to get the economy going, while the investor class, with the Fed's support, cashes in no matter what. In Europe, Germany has been praised for finally coming around to the need for government stimulus during a recession. The German investor class has made austerity practically a religion. But is its current stimulus actually such a big break with the past? How long will this revolution in policy, as the massive finance company BlackRock calls it, last? Talking about the stimulus funds. The pandemic is far from over. Yet there is already talk of inflation down the line and eventually the need for austerity. Now joining us is Heiner Flassbeck. He became the state secretary or vice minister in the Federal German Ministry of Finance from 1998 to 1999, where he was responsible for international affairs, the EU, and relations with the IMF. Flassbeck worked for the United Nations Agency, UNCTAD, in Geneva from 2000 on, and from 2003 to 2012, he was the director of the Division on Globalization and Development Strategies. Since January 2013, Heiner has been director of Flassbeck Economics, a consultancy for global macroeconomic questions. Thanks so much for joining us, Heiner. Thanks for inviting me. So what city are you in? Where are you today? I'm close to Geneva in France still. Let's, let's start with Europe and then we'll move to the United States. Uh, Germany and uh, most of the other European countries that have the capacity to do so uh, have put uh, what we read about in the newspapers at the very least, significant amounts of stimulus money directly into the economy. Uh, we're told Germany has done something significant. Uh, how do you rate how the governments, central banks of Europe, uh, particularly Germany, are dealing with the crisis? Well, uh, in the first uh, round, uh, they, the institutions, the government and the central bank, the European central bank, seem have understood uh, how dangerous this crisis is. So they reacted immediately. Uh, they... Uh, reacted with uh, huge sums of money that were put uh, uh, on the table. And, um, but the very open question is now, how, how deep is the crisis? And more than that, uh, and more critical than that, uh, how quickly will Europe and Germany go out of this crisis? And there is a lot of uncertainty around this. Uh, we have seen the biggest shock ever in economic, in the younger economic history since the wars, at least. And um, that was clearly a government made shock. So it was uh, an intentional shock. It was not uh, coming from the economy, but it came from the government. And um, the first idea was that the government would, so to say, create a scenario of long vacation. We all will have two months of vacation, more or less, and then we go back to work as 
we go back to work uh, on the 1st of September every year. But uh, this has not uh, played out uh, because uh, the unemployment shock was too big and the compensation that the governments gave all over Europe, including Germany, were too, too little and too small so that uh, even in Germany, we have a number of people, say something like uh, 9 million uh, people who are directly affected by uh, the economic fallout uh, of the crisis of the Corona shock. Uh, and this is, this is quite uh, something. This is 20% uh, uh, of the whole uh, employed uh, population. And if you uh, shock these so, so many people and uh, they are living in uncertainty at, uh, and many of them are living at 60% or so, something like that of their former pay, uh, then it's absolutely clear that you cannot go out uh, immediately out of this crisis once the, the uh, direct threat of the, of the uh, pandem pandemic uh, is over. So um, the, the point is that we have um, all of Europe uh, quick reaction, but the, quick, the reaction may not, may not be big enough because uh, uh, we, ha we do not have clear calculations what the second quarter was, but the calculations in the second quarter go up to a minus of 10%. And if it is 10% and the recovery is not immediate and quick after that, then the government programs indeed are too small. So give us some of the numbers. Uh, what, what has Germany done and what, what do you think they should do now? Yeah, well, Germany has, uh, well, the first, the number, numbers sound quite impressive. Uh, Germany has uh, an increase of the government deficit of something like 200 billion. Uh, but we're talking about uh, a total uh, economic loss of uh, maybe something like 400 uh, billion. So uh, even this number gives you uh, an idea that uh, the reaction may be maybe too small. And uh, in Germany in particular, we have a special problem, which is not the same in the other European countries. Germany has this extremely huge surplus uh, on the current account up to the very last moment before this crisis. And we see now that the exports are dropping like a stone. So the German exports are down on the year before in, in April and May by something like 30, 30%, 3.0, which means uh, this is an additional shock that comes to the domestic shock. So um, my calculation for, for Germany is that we get uh, overall a fall of uh, a drop of uh, the GDP of something like at least 10%, uh, maybe a bit more than 10% for the year as a whole, for the year as a whole. In your article uh, in, on your web, Website, you talk about that the German auto industry, which is particularly important uh, for the German economy, both domestically and in terms of exports, is also particularly vulnerable. And, and this may be a somewhat structural vulnerability. Right. Uh, we, we have uh, total, uh, Germany has a structural problem, which is the export sector that is much too big for the size of the economy. We have an export share in our uh, GDP of something like 45, something a bit more than 45%, imagine. So Germany is extremely dependent on, uh, on exports and in particular automobiles and machines. And what we see now, the pattern of recovery is uh, that the people are going out and spend 
on smaller items, but the bigger items like automobiles or for the company's investment goods, this is not, uh, not yet there. The demand for that is not yet there. And here is Germany's strength. So Germany's strength before the crisis can easily turn into its uh, fundamental weakness now after the crisis. How do you rate how the United States has done in terms of the policy and response to the crisis? Well, you see, the, one of the main problems, in my view, is that in the United States, you have uh, plain unemployment in the first round. Uh, in, in Germany and other European countries that follow Germany in that measure, we have a, a scheme that is called short-time work, uh, which is not exactly the same than unemployment. In the end, it may be also unemployment, but in the first round, People, uh, people are less uh, less scared by this short time uh, short time work because they're still on the job. They they are not uh, fired. Uh, they're still on the job. They can they have a right to return as soon as the uh, the company does better and as soon as the scheme uh, is uh, is over. And uh, so the situation is a bit different. Uh, uh, than in the United States. In the United States, I think the biggest shock was this enormous numbers of uh, unemployed people that we have seen the uh, the number of uh, registrations for unemployment were, were absolutely dramatic. And I think I think this uh, sent shockwaves through the whole economy. And the government uh, obviously is not able to to respond to that. The first uh, reaction was also okay. But um, I, have, I haven't seen consistent plans for what, what is happening in the United States if uh, the recovery does not come uh, as uh, most people expect. Well, every indication is that it's not going to for much of the country. California is under lockdown again. Yeah. Texas, Florida, some very major states. And New York is a little better off. But now they're talking about uh, how does New York keep its numbers low when so much else of the country is spiking. There's just so much travel to New York, and both people leaving and coming back and people visiting. Uh, and, and then you hit the fall when it gets cold in winter and people head inside. Uh, you know, the second wave is what people are talking about, or even just the more intense <laughs> period of the first wave. It's hard to see that the United States, uh, given how chaotic everything is there, is going to be able to make much of a recovery soon. But ironically, I don't know if ironic's the right word, China actually does seem to be making uh, a significant recovery and the economy seems to be opening up significantly. Well, I guess we'll see if there's any new, new significant new spiking there. But if, if China does stay on this course of reopening and the economy gets stronger while the American economy continues to uh, be mostly closed and, and, and in trouble, um, what does that mean geopolitically? And let me read you something. Uh, BlackRock, the big asset management company, in fact, the largest in the world, uh, something like $7 trillion under management, and really probably become the most influential financial company in the world, including uh, managing some of this bailout money that uh, the Fed has given mostly to prop up the stock market. Um, but let me read you something in a, in a report they just just came out. This is a sentence where they say the world is increasingly becoming bifurcated with the U.S. and China at opposite poles 
Intense rivalry looks set to affect nearly every dimension of the U.S.-China relationship, regardless of the U.S. election outcome. Other countries will increasingly be pushed to choose sides. Uh, it's very interesting. They also use the word deglobalization because they're saying these global supply chains have proved to be so unreliable at, at times like this pandemic. So given this U.S.-China rivalry, how is this going to affect Europe, uh, especially if the American economy is really in the doldrums as, as, and, and as a purchaser, say, of German cars and goods, and China becomes a stronger purchaser of machinery and perhaps cars and other things? Uh, what, what does that mean to the geopolitics? Well, that uh, is, is definitely meaning a big change. I'm, I'm uh, hesitating for the moment to use the word deglobalization. What we what we see actually is deglobalization, but it's not a systematic deglobalization that is driven by policy. It's uh, by chance that we have deglobalization at this moment of time. Uh, whether it will come back in the old way is, is an open question. The crucial point is in all that is how are governments able and willing to respond? And if I mean respond, I do not mean only the first three months of response, but I mean the next two years or five years or 10 years. This will be absolutely crucial. And that will decide about uh, uh, the strength of Europe compared to the US or to China. Uh, and um, let, let me explain that for a minute. Uh, the, the point is, that uh, the U.S. With the, with the election coming up is obviously unable to, to really to react uh, very strongly and, and uh, effectively at this moment of time. Europe has reacted to a certain extent, but there is a lot of infight. There's a lot of horse trading now about the 700 million, that, a billion that were, were proved to be paid to uh, the most affected region. So now they're discussing what is most affected region and so on. And, but, and the crucial thing is, as you said at the beginning, there is already talk about, uh, about uh, austerity policies later. There is uh, policy uh, talk about inflation dangers later and so on. So, and, and there is a, a great, a great uncertainty about European politics. It is uh, nearly as big as in the United States because many people in Europe have not understood what this shock really means and how to, how to live with it over the years. And many people still believe, and I just uh, yesterday, there was a letter from the Bank, to, uh, Bank of France to uh, uh, the president of France uh, saying, well, we have to cut down, we have to cut down everything from the government expenses uh, up of beginning in 2022 already. And these same voices you hear in Germany, and that is extremely dangerous. Uh, if we're not, we, we will not come out of this crisis like Phoenix uh, from the ashes, we will come out in a very dirty and slowly way. And then it is crucial that the governments understand and the new government in the US then hopefully also understands that it is their job to push the economy further on. There is no market. I've, uh, we had many interviews in the past, Paul, and I, I always uh, told you that we have a fundamentally changed world. There is no locomotive on the company side anymore as it was 20, 30 years ago after the Second World War. No, the companies 
are net savers. They are blocking the economy instead of pushing it. And the result is BlackRock. These are the people that are uh, administering the money, but the money is useless. This, all these savings money are useless if they are not put, uh, put into, uh, into, into uh, machinery and equipment and infrastructure and so on. And this has, but this has to be done by the government. And if the governments are not willing to do it, they will fail. And I'm sure China will be willing to do it. You see, this is the big difference. In the, in the last 10 years, even, U.S. was more willing to do it than, than Europe. Now it's a very open question whether the U.S. will have a functioning government at all. I'm not sure. Uh, but... Um, uh, in Europe, there, there is the biggest the biggest problem is to overcome the prejudice about government debt and the dangers, the perceived dangers of government debt and so on. And this is the biggest stumbling block for Europe. And uh, so uh, the, the cards will definitely, uh, uh, new cards will be on the table and China will come out of this crisis stronger than ever before. But that's anyway... Uh, fact of life and uh, we have to, to live with it. Uh, China will be the strongest economy in 10 years time in the world and uh, nobody can nobody can uh, do anything again. It's not reasonable to do anything against it because uh, it, is, it is absolutely reasonable to, uh, reasonable to cooperate with the Chinese and to try to make the best out of this fact uh, and not, not to uh, go into infighting like uh, UK now does with uh, Huawei and, and all these silly things. Well, I don't think anyone can accuse the United States of being reasonable about the decline of their empire. So I wouldn't expect much reasonableness about it. Um, here's a little more of that memo from a, our document from BlackRock. After they say other countries will increasingly be pushed to choose sides between the U.S. and China, it goes on to say decoupling, which they mean decoupling of the U.S. and Chinese economies. Decoupling is focused on, but not limited to, the technology sector. This means investors need exposure to both markets, which of course is how they always, they always play. They'll invest in China and the US and see if they can take advantage even of the rivalry. Uh, this means investors need exposure to both markets, especially as the center of gravity of global growth is moving to Asia as the shifting center of gravity chart shows. And they have a chart here. Second, the pandemic is poised to accelerate deglobalization as it magnifies nationalist and protectionist trends. The crisis adds to existing pressures such as global trade tensions and populism, a, a totally misused word because at any rate, anything that isn't politics under their control, they call populism at any rate. This uh, threatens to disrupt the web of global supply chains at the expense of efficiency. It may lead to onshoring the production of strategic goods. So they're painting a, a, a very dangerous picture of, of a very intense U.S.-China rivalry and the rise of nationalism and protectionism. And, of course, that's always been you know, a very serious trend in Europe that has led to fascism. So what, is, what, do you, what do you see in terms of how this might affect European politics? Well, Europe, uh, the, the biggest danger is still a uh, return of nationalism. Uh, we had the Euro crisis, we have now the Corona crisis, which is much bigger than the Euro uh, crisis. 
if uh, Europe is not able to uh, to find common ground on economic policy, as I said before, and the common ground must be that the role of the government is much, much stronger than ever in Europe before. If they do not find that common ground and they're finding, uh, they're fighting all the time about the, the right way out of this crisis, yeah, then uh, I think Europe does not have uh, really a future. Um, then the, the nationalist tendencies will come up in Germany as well as in Italy. This is the funny thing, <coughs> sorry, that on both sides we will have uh, rising nationalism and uh, how long Europe is going to survive that is a very open question. You see, the, the tensions in Europe were very strong up to four weeks ago or so. The, the French president came out with an interview with the Financial Times where he was extremely critical with Germany, including Germany. And um, he said, we're missing a historic chance and, and Germany has not understood what is at stake and so on. And then uh, in re response to that, Madame Merkel and uh, Macron uh, joined forces, obviously pushed by the diplomats on both sides. And so they threw a lot of money in, uh, into the game uh, this uh, five, first 500 billion, now 750 billion that are uh, uh, going through the commission, through the European Commission. The European Commission will distribute that money or the negotiations about this distribution are now underway this weekend will be crucial. Uh, so, uh, but, but this is not the way to do it. The right way to do it would have been for Europe from the very beginning in this crisis uh, that uh, as in other countries, as in the United States, the central bank is uh, obviously financing a large part of the, uh, of the uh, government uh, funds that are used to fight the, the crisis. And that should have been an open point, an open discussion in Europe, but it is a taboo. The central bank is not allowed to finance the government. But this is stupid. Uh, if from the very beginning, the European central bank would have said, we're financing Italy as well as we're financing Germany, then uh, every country could have done what is absolutely necessary uh, to fight this uh, corona shock. Uh, now, as I said, there's a lot of horse trading and this horse trading may, may go on for another three months. And this will, this will really uh, disturb the European mood that was brought up by Merkel and Macron for, for uh, yeah, for a second or for a minute. Uh, and um, uh, there is not really a strategic answer of Europe uh, to uh, this crisis in, in a year or two. Uh, people are sticking to the old treaties, uh, the Maastricht Treaty that lays down these silly things, all these silly things that I'm talking about, uh, that uh, uh, central bank is not allowed to finance the government even in, in such a situation that um, uh, the limits to government debt are clearly set at 60% of GDP, which is really stupid after this crisis because we will all be far beyond this. France will be at 120%, Germany will be at 100%, Italy will be at 160%. So it's absolutely crazy to talk about returning to something like 60%. And, and I do not see at the moment that there is a figure, a, a leader in Europe who could, who could jump over this and uh, say, no, we, we need a new game, uh, a totally new view of the world, uh, so to, to regain European strength. And that is why, uh, in my view, 
uh, Europe will be weak and uh, the US will also, I think, whoever becomes president uh, uh, will be also uh, weak for a long time. Let me read again um, this sentence from the BlackRock document. The world is increasingly becoming bifurcated with the U.S. and China at opposite poles. Intense rivalry looks like looks set to affect nearly every dimension of the U.S.-China relationship. And goes on to say, and this is important, regardless of the U.S. election outcome. And one can see that now. Biden's rhetoric on China, if anything, he's trying to be even more militant or aggressive in his rhetoric about China. And then it says, again, other countries will increasingly be pushed to choose sides. So if the Americans put real, even more pressure on Europe to side with the U.S. in this rivalry with China. But as you said, China is actually going to have the strongest economy, stronger economy in a decade. Then it doesn't serve Europe very well to side with this declining mess of, of United States against China. That's right. That's absolutely right. If uh, I have to recommend a policy, I would always say uh, keep good, good relations with China uh, and uh, try and hope for a better president in the United States. So be strategic on China uh, because there uh, you you can be rather sure that the that the party line will be will be stable and uh, concise for for many many years. Uh, whoever is president. And uh, so um, that is right. And, and uh, don't forget the German economy, the French economy, the Italian economy, they're all heavily engaged in China. They cannot info- afford to give up China and to take side with the United States. Simply taking side with the United States would be extremely costly. How, how big a market is China for Germany? Well, it's not a, a big market as such. Uh, the direct uh, export-import is not uh, is not too much, but the, the the production of German companies in China is remarkable, and the production of French companies in China for the world market is uh, is uh, important. So this is more important than the direct trade relations. So this idea of decoupling uh, is, is not something Europe's going to be very interested in. No, no, there is no decoupling. And, and that's even true for the United States. The, the, China is the big production hub of the whole world. And you cannot suddenly cut uh, the relationship to this hub. It's, it's the hub of all of us, of all countries. And uh, to say, we, we, we don't want China anymore. Well, it's too late. I, I could, can only say it's too late. 30 years ago, you could have said that. But to say today is, is really stupid. And, uh, and, and you have to, to find compromises uh, with China. It's not a, a, an unre- uh, uh, unresponsible, irresponsible government there. Uh, they have their interests, their, their local interests, as everybody has. And you have to deal with it. You have to deal with them. You have to deal with Taiwan. You have to de- deal with uh, the, the South China Sea and so on. But, uh, but uh, try to find compromises. The country is willing to compromise. That's no, no question about it. Uh, it's not uh, like the United States, uh, uh, as strict as the United States in, in many respects, where 
there is no compromise at all. It's, it's a different country and a different approach. It's an Asian approach, which means talk to the people uh, and try to convince them. Well, as we know, Trump just announced uh, that the, the United States won't recognize any sovereignty of China over the South China Sea whatsoever, as recognizing the, some, the rights of Philippines and some of the other countries there. I mean, it's clearly done in the most provocative of ways. And Steve Bannon, which apparently is still in Trump's ear, yeah. he's still in Trump's ear, yeah, yeah. has openly advocated a military confrontation in the South China Sea and actually pushed the Chinese um, when they passed this enormous new military budget. Uh, almost really, it was 700 billion or 800 billion, but it was really over a trillion. Um, when the Def Secretary of Defense was asked to justify the reasons in Congress uh, for such a large budget, his answers were there's three reasons, China, China, and China. I mean, the, the Pentagon, the, the whole approach is, is preparing for war. I don't know how serious they are about it because it would be crazy. But this would not be the first war that's crazy that gets waged. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. It's, uh, but it would be clearly the craziest one. Uh, no, China, you see, if you look at the history of China, China has never been an imperialistic power. China has always defended its, its home country and what it perceived to be its territory, its people. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the China approach. It's not an approach going out and uh, uh, conquering other countries or other regions. Well, that's, that's not quite, it's not quite right because while well, they have not gone out militarily and that's been the tradition, they're really competitive uh, commercially. And, you know, in Latin America, I think in Brazil, China is actually a bigger trading partner than the United States is. And that's through the number one or number two trading partner all through Latin America, certainly in Africa. China is, it has stronger relationships than the United States in many countries. I mean, China really is a global power, even if it's well, not sure. a global military power. Yeah, but, but we're talking about the military power at this moment. Uh, no, that's absolutely right. But, but uh, don't forget, China is so strong. That is what I said before. China is so strong because so many Western companies are producing there. It is not everything originally China. What comes from China is always in the large, uh, to a large part, it's our products produced in China. That's a different thing. Uh, you see, up to, I do not know, I do not have the latest number, but up to 10 years ago when I was at Antwerp and we were discussing these things very intensively, it was absolutely clear that Chinese export consisted to 60 to 70% at that time of exports from affiliates of Western firms in China, not originally Chinese exports. But it's absolutely clear also that if, if a country is, that is so big and has 30 years of such an enormous growth, which what we have taught them or not, did we, didn't we tell them market is a good thing? So they have 30 years of extraordinary growth, the, the biggest growth story and success story of all times. Uh, then it's absolutely clear this country is becoming rich and this country has the means and it will use the means to go out. We have been in China all the time, but now they're coming out. But the coming out is still small compared to what is in China from our side. Well, I guess we'll have to see how serious 
this decoupling is. I mean, it seems what uh, BlackRock is predicting or suggesting is that there's going to be real pressure in the United States to close down some of the production in China and move it back to the United States. I mean, Trump talked about it, but didn't really do much about it. Uh, it will be interesting. If, if, if there's a President Biden, if he actually is more serious than Trump was. Well, I, I, I must say, when I heard Biden the other day, I was really scared. Uh, it, uh, I, I never thought uh, high of this guy, but uh, what, what he said there was really, yeah, well, not, not much better than what Trump says, really. Uh, and uh, he says, buy American, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's no longer possible. You can buy American whatever you want, but it will be extremely expensive. Uh, you see, uh, the, the whole process that the people obviously have not understood in the United States, the whole process of the China, of China became, becoming this huge production hub is a process of uh, using high productivity, our high productivity with and combining it with low wages in China. If you bring it back, uh, well, th this all can be used in the United States, but you have to close all borders. You should not have any trade with anyone in the world anymore because it's not competitive at all. Uh, this is absolutely clear. And, uh, and, and uh, I, I'm asking myself, is this, is this a reasonable way for a great nation like the United States? And then the people will say, oh, your tech companies are, they are successful in the rest of the world. Oh, let's close them down and uh, shut, it, uh, shut it down and uh, protect ourselves against your tech companies. This will be a disastrous, a disastrous fight uh, that will, will begin with this uh, decoupling idea. And what happens to the standard of living of American workers which frankly is so much subsidized, you know, Walmart and others through cheap products from China. If they don't have those cheap products, uh, how, how people are going to have trouble living on the wages they're getting yeah, paid. Exactly. Yeah, you can compensate it all by the government, but it will be extremely costly, no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think this whole system is that it's coming to a conclusion here. This kind of capitalism just doesn't work anymore. If we would know what the alternative is, I would be happy to go for the alternative. But unfortunately, we do not know. That's the problem. Well, let's do another segment on that. Okay. Um, thanks very much for joining us, Hunter. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm -hmm.